millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Think Queen. I am your host, Kine. I'm so excited about today's episode because we're going up high in the sky, reaching for the stars, and right into space. Humans from the dawn of time have been fascinated by space. Humans have looked to the sky for navigation, for keeping time and making calendars, for agriculture, for omens from the gods, and for answers to life's questions like, what is the meaning of life? Am I the main character of the universe, or are we just one out of many planets floating in a vast sea of emptiness? When I was 12 years old, I read a book called Cosmos by Carl Sagan, which I borrowed from the school's library. And it was all about the universe and the Big Bang Theory, and it explained how the universe began 13.7 billion years ago, and then a few billion years later, our sun was formed by a bunch of particles floating in space coming together from gravity. And in another few billion years from now, our sun will explode and engulf the earth. That totally blew my mind and basically was how I became an atheist. Ever since then, I always had a huge interest in space. I found it so romantic and interesting. And I loved how there was still so much out there that is still unknown. And I, for one, found it very humbling that the Earth is just one small speck of dust, a pale blue dot suspended in a sunbeam, as Carl Sagan put it. For years, I wanted to become an astronomer or an astrophysicist and help answer those unanswered questions. But in high school, when I started taking physics classes, I actually realized I wasn't really enjoying them as much as I enjoyed the math classes. A little bit too many string and pulley problems for me, I think. But that is why I ended up choosing math as my degree in university. With that being said, I still love learning about space, so that's why I'm so excited for this episode. Today, I have the honor of being joined by Emily Calandrelli, a former intern at NASA, MIT engineer, children's book author, professional speaker, the host of Exploration Outer Space and Emily's Wonder Lab, and science communicator, also known as The Space Gal. Hi, Emily. Hi, Kine. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Me too. Okay, my first question is, what drew you to studying space? So I also loved math growing up. That and art and some more like creative interests were my passions growing up. 
But for me, I went into engineering. I, I studied aerospace engineering. I went into engineering for very practical reasons. My family didn't have a, a ton of money growing up. And for me, getting a good job that paid good money was like top of mind. And so when I was a high school senior, I literally Googled all of the majors that one could major in in college. And I looked at their starting salaries. And that is how I decided to go into engineering. Once I was in college, I wasn't sure what kind of engineering I wanted to do. As you know, there's many different types, but I saw this class that you could take if you were an aerospace engineer that would allow you to fly on the Vomit Comet. And if you don't know, have you heard of the Vomit Comet? Sounds like a roller coaster ride in a theme park. <laughs> it is an 8,000 foot roller coaster in the sky that is on a plane. And so it's used to train astronauts. It's used to conduct microgravity weightless experiments. And if you were an aerospace engineer, an aerospace engineering student, you could design a science experiment to fly on the Vomit Comet. And it looked so cool. I wanted to float weightless like an astronaut. I wanted to design an experiment for the Vomit Comet and fly on the Vomit Comet. And so that's how I decided to go into aerospace engineering. And I just fell in love with all of it. And I haven't turned back since. Awesome. I feel like for most people, when they think about astronauts, NASA, space exploration, they think of the moon landing from the 60s, which I obviously wasn't even there for. But I, even in my mind, I like think of the image of like person on the moon, putting down a flag. It's like such an iconic image, but obviously so much has happened since then. So how has space exploration changed in the last 50 years? And what are some of the biggest highlights that's happened since then? It's been wild. So like you said, back during the Apollo era, when the space program was just beginning, the only people who could afford to do the very risky and very costly business of space exploration were these large government agencies. So the Soviet Union and the United States. And today, a few things have happened that have lowered the barrier to entry into space exploration, mostly having to do with cost. So the cost of launches have come down significantly and the cost of satellites, the stuff that you would actually just put into space, have gone down significantly. And because of that, today we have more people doing more new things in space than we've ever seen before. It is like this renaissance era of space exploration because of all of this commercial activity. So we have space tourism where you can buy a ticket into space. We have people who are creating these mega constellations of satellites, something that we couldn't do a decade ago because satellites were so expensive before. And they're doing a number of things with these. They're, they're creating internet for the planet. They are taking pictures of our planet and taking data of our planet, not just optical imagery, but they're doing a, a whole spectrum of things. We have like the James Webb Space Telescope. We're going back to mm -hmm. the moon. There's just, it's a launch list of really cool stuff that's happening in the space industry right now. Yeah, I never would have thought that space had to do with internet. But now that you mention it, I guess like the satellites that do our internet are up in space. So that's changing because right now the landscape of the internet, only half of the world has access to the internet today crazy. Which is crazy because this is a tool that like helps build economies and like lifts people out of poverty, mm -hmm. democratizes education and healthcare. And it's like this really wonderful, important tool and only half of the world has it. And the reason that is, is because the primary way we get internet today is through physical cables that run underground. So like these literal cables that connect our houses together and then they literally run the lengths of the ocean. Like they have to be shark proof. Mm. And that's not a very 
very efficient way, especially for people who live out in remote areas or in poor areas where you don't have a big company that's willing to pay all that money to lay down all that cable. And so now people are launching satellites into space to try to cover the planet and connect the rest of the planet. Well, I find space like so fascinating. Obviously, I'm all for exploring space, exploring our solar system. But I have to ask, because this is one of like people's biggest concerns with it is basically why? Like why when there are so many problems on Earth, like climate change, homelessness, poverty, why are our governments sending billion dollar aircrafts to go take pictures of the rings of Saturn, for instance. Right, exactly. So the question comes up a lot. Why are we spending so much money on space when we have so many problems down here on Earth? And the Mm -hmm. underlying assumption with that question is that everything that we see going on in space is our tax dollars. And anytime we're spending tax dollars on anything, it's a valid question to ask, like, is this an efficient use Mm. of our tax dollars? But so much of the stuff that we see in space today, because of all the things I mentioned, are privately funded. Like, it just happens to be businesses who are creating companies that happen to operate in space. Now, not all of it. A lot of it is government taxpayer dollars. And I think the thing that I would say is that with NASA, NASA is doing a number of things. NASA is tracking killer asteroids that could wipe out the Earth. NASA is expanding the human presence into the solar system, which in my opinion helps ensure the survival of the human race. NASA is operating satellites that look back down at Earth that track things like climate change so that we can better understand how climate change is actually happening. They're making airplane engines more efficient, better for the environment and quieter. They're doing a lot of these things. And so the question should be like, how much of our government dollars should we be spending on this? On like the survival mm-hmm. of the human species, protecting our planet, learning about climate change, those kinds of things. Should it be 90%? Probably not. We have healthcare and other really good social programs that we need to be spending money on. Is it 50%? No, it's lower than that. It happens to be just 0.4% of the federal budget that we are spending on this. And in my opinion, that's an appropriate amount of money that we should be spending on the potential survival of the human race every year. Maybe other people would disagree, but in my opinion, we're not spending a ton of money on it. And what they do with that money is really important. Fair enough. I also find like when people talk about, oh, our tax dollars, it's funny to me because like the government, especially like in America, they always find money if it like has to do with the military or like wars. There's always like an endless pot of money for that. But nobody wants to question that, huh? Exactly. (laughs) Well, you mentioned space tourism earlier, which I wanted to ask about because in the past few years, we've heard about, you know, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Richard Branson going into space. And they've drawn a lot of criticism, especially since we've been in a pandemic the past couple years. Times are tough and we're seeing these billionaires go out into outer space, sometimes just for fun. So what are your thoughts on space tourism? Yeah, I mean, so the landscape of astronauts today is very, very, I would say, homogeneous. Like the people who have been to space look very much the same. So there have been about 600 people who have been to space in the history of time, only about 600. Mm -hmm. And the people who have been to space, they are mostly white, mostly men, mostly American, mostly scientists and engineers. And the reason why I care about that in particular, because only about 12% of them have been women, is that because when people go to space, it changes how they feel about our planet. Being able to see our planet from beyond our atmosphere, it's something called the overview effect. 
And it's this mm-hmm. cognitive shift in perspective of how you view our planet and our place in the universe. Because you see our planet with that thin blue atmosphere. You see it as this pale blue dot hanging in the void of space. And the people who come back from space, they have all of these stories to tell and they are a better steward of the environment. They're a better neighbor to each other. They have this holistic view of our world. But that opportunity has only been offered to a very specific group of people. And they're all telling, you know, relatively the same story from relatively the same perspective. Space tourism has the opportunity to open up that opportunity to more diverse people. And they already have. So Jeff Bezos went into space in 2021. And that was a very flashy story. But to me, the Mm -hmm. more important story is not just one story, but the stories of the people who come after them. It's the many stories of the diverse people who go after them. And so they've been able to send the first Mexican-born woman into space, the second Indian-born woman into space, the first Egyptian into space. They've sent the oldest person into space, the youngest person into space, and they're just getting started. And so to me, that is a really cool thing to focus on because it's easy to focus on the billionaires in space. Mm Them being able to lower the barrier of entry to be able to even experience this and have that story be able to be shared with more of the human population, we're able to just bring bring a more representative group into space. And I think that's really exciting. I'd love to be the first drag queen in space. What do you think? That would be amazing. (laughs) Like that hair in space, can you like, it would be even more voluminous. (laughs) I, I know I need something that'll like float around. We're going to get right back into it in just a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome back to Think Queen. Elon Musk, his company SpaceX, I read that one of their missions is to help one day colonize Mars. Do you think that's like even possible for humans to do? Oh, gosh. So the topic of Mars is always a really interesting one because the idea behind it is that it is maybe not the best idea for the human race to only be on one planet if our goal is to survive through time. Hmm. Being able to bring the human race to multiple planetary bodies is kind of like backing up the human race on a Martian hard drive to (laughs) just ensure the survival of the human species. In theory, I think that's a good idea. Personally, I don't think everybody necessarily thinks that's a good idea, but I think that that's a good idea. The problem is, is that Mars is a crappy planet. 
Mm. It's the best one we've got because it's relatively close and we could find a way to live there. But like, could we even breathe on there? The atmosphere? No, ours will kill you in an <laughs> instant. It sucks. And so you have to bring all of the stuff that you need with you. You're going to have to bring your own air. You have to bring your own food or you have to find a way to make all of that stuff on Mars. Mm. And it's kind of like, there's a reason why we don't have a ton of people living in Antarctica. Mm. When people say they would love to go on a one-way trip to Mars, I'm like, I don't see you going out and living in Antarctica. I don't believe you yeah. say you want to live on Mars. And so I do think it's a good idea, but I think it's going to be a really difficult challenge and it's going to take a lot of money and resources to do it. So Musk is not going to be able to do this alone. He's going to need mm. a government's help. He's going to need NASA's help. SpaceX would not survive without the government. And so when Musk says he has these lofty goals, I think it's really important and interesting to work towards those goals, but he's not going to be able to do that alone. If it were to happen in the future, how long do you think it would take? Like, do you think it, we'd see that like in the next hundred years? Oh, in the next hundred years, yes. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. I think we're going to see the first person on Mars in the next 20 years. Wow. You'll find a lot of people who say that we'll be able to bring the first person on Mars in the next 10 years. I am a bit more conservative, I would say, in 20 years. But I do think that we'll have a sustained human presence on Mars in the next hundred years. Now, is that a crew of like six to 12 astronauts? Or is it like literally a settlement of 3,000 people? I, I don't know. There's mm. a, lot of, a lot of variables up in the air there. Well, it's funny because when we first put a person on the moon, like all those years ago, it was during a space race during the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, which just for a little context for the listeners, the Soviet Union was the first to put humans in space. The first person in space was a Soviet, Yuri Gagarin. And that sort of fueled the Americans to put their resources together to put a person on the moon and stamp down the American flag. So in order for us to sort of get to that next big breakthrough, like putting the first person on Mars, do you think that we need another like space race to motivate us? I like when we mentioned how bloated our military budget is. Mm. I mean, during the Apollo days, the military incentive and the space incentive were intertwined. Were the same. They were the same because that space race was all about showing whose missiles were better mm -hmm. because a missile is a rocket. And so if you can bring someone to the moon, like what else can you do? Mm. Now the incentives today for exploration are a little bit different. And I do think if there were another space race that were military driven, that would infuse a lot of money and kickstart a, a space program to be faster. I don't think we need that necessarily, but I do think it would bring a lot of money to the program and help it go faster. Will that happen? It, I mean, it depends on what's happening internationally. I think our next big competitor, Russia is still a big player in terms of spacefaring nations, and they are top three, essentially, um, usually in the top two. But China is now becoming the second most powerful, most competent spacefaring nation in the world. And they are moving very quickly. They just completed their first space station in orbit, and they have their own Taikonauts, like their name for astronauts, living on board. Ooh. They were the first nation to land on the far side of the moon. They have plans to bring humans to the moon. And so now the question becomes like, well, are we going to go to the moon? Are we going to go to Mars? If we don't, somebody else will. And so once I think the United States, mm. especially people in Congress, see that China's making a lot more progress than we are, they aren't yet, but if they start doing that, that might 
start drawing some questions of like, wait, why aren't we on Mars yet? If China's mm. going to go there in a few years, shouldn't we go there first? So there's this national pride and maybe even some military nerves that might kick in when all of a sudden China has the ability to go to Mars first. Kind of depends on how much money we're willing to infuse into the program. It's kind of sad that we have to like be competitive like that because you think it's just enough for us to want to go out of curiosity because I feel like space should be like the place where the borders don't really matter you know like we should be able to share all of our knowledge with Russia and China and we should all be working together because we're like one human race. There are so many examples where we do do that. Russia and China are unique circumstances because of the geopolitical climate, working with them even in very innocuous ways with space exploration is tough to do. You have to get a lot of approval to do it. Mm. But there is a lot of international collaboration in space, mostly because we all have different talents and budgets that we can pull together. And everything in space is very complicated and very expensive. And so it behooves us to work together. And so international partnerships are really common. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the invasion of Ukraine and how that impacted the mm. space industry. But because of all of this intertwining relationships in the international community, if one partner all of a sudden falls out for any reason, it creates ripple effects throughout the industry. And so, for example, the European Space Agency had this really cool Mars rover that they were developing with Russia called the mm -hmm. Rosalind Franklin rover. It was going to drill deeper into the Martian surface than we've ever seen before. The international community was really excited about it. And it was supposed to launch last year. But mm. with the invasion of Ukraine, Russia stops launching as frequently and also the European Space Agency needed to cut ties with them. And so now the rover is delayed. They have to find a new launch partner, a new partner to help develop other parts of the rover. And everything's been really delayed. And so that's just one example of when one partner falls out, like mm. uh, it creates a whole mess of things. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how we'd all work together if there's wars between us. I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to ask about the James Webb Space Telescope because we've all heard about it. I've heard it's like bigger and fancier and more fabulous than the Hubble Space Telescope. But what exactly do space telescopes do and what are we trying to learn from them? Oh my gosh. So the James Webb Space Telescope was this monumental achievement that came to a head just this past couple years because it has been in development for more than two decades, and it's cost over $10 billion. And for all of that time and all of that money to be made worthwhile, the launch mm. and the deployment of this technology had to go perfectly. And it did. And so when we first saw the images from the James Webb Space Telescope, it just, it, it it's going to open up an entirely new field of astronomy, because the reason why this is so unique, the reason why the James Webb Space Telescope is so special is because it views the universe in infrared light. It's a different type of light than the Hubble viewed the universe in. The Hubble typically viewed the universe in optical light. Infrared mm -hmm. light is special because it allows us to see farther away from us than we've ever seen before. Well, and because light takes time to travel, this also means that we can see farther back in time than we've mm -hmm. ever seen before. And in fact, we can actually see the universe shortly after the Big Bang. Wow. I have an example that might help understand this because when when I first learned about this, it blew my brain. Like I just like I could not understand what that meant. 
um, to see farther back in time. And mm-hmm. so what it means is like the sun itself is eight light minutes away from us, meaning it yeah. takes eight minutes for light to travel from us to the sun. And so if kind, if you were on the sun and you had a flashlight and you turned on your flashlight and I'm sitting here on earth, I wouldn't know that you had turned on that flashlight until eight minutes after you had turned it on because it takes eight minutes for that light to Mm -hmm. reach me. Meaning when I see you turn on that flashlight, I am seeing you technically as you existed eight minutes ago. And so this telescope can see things that are not just eight light minutes away, but that are billions of light years away. And so we are seeing the universe as it existed billions of years in the past. And this is why they say telescopes are like time machines. And the James Webb Space mm-hmm. Telescope is the most powerful time machine that we have ever built. I know I read something online that was like saying if another planet was like looking at our planet, they might see dinosaurs and they might think, oh, there's no intelligent life there yet. Yep. And they may never come back and check. They may never come back and check. Do you think there's other life out there? Oh my gosh. So when I am asked that question, I think about the James Webb Space Telescope deep field image. This is the Mm. image that was the very first image that was shared when the James Webb Space Telescope went into operation, shared by the Biden administration. And if you're looking at it, it doesn't really look like much. It looks like a bunch of blobs in a square, but those blobs are galaxies. There are thousands of galaxies in that single square. And the reason why that's a big deal is because a hundred years ago, we thought we were the only galaxy in existence. The Milky Way Mm -hmm. galaxy is our home galaxy. We thought we were the only galaxy in existence. And this little square had thousands in it. And then you can ask like, well, how much of the universe is that little square? That little square takes up the same area of sky as if you held a grain of sand in your fingers and held out your fingers at arm's length and looked at the night sky, that little square is a grain of sand area of the night sky, which means there are a couple trillion galaxies in existence, each of them with like a hundred billion stars. And each of those stars has at least one planet around it. And so when people ask me if we're alone in the universe, I'm like, it would be a weird, weird, weird coincidence. Mm-hmm. If we were alone, that would be like crazy. It would be nuts. And so I I think when we thought we were the center of the solar system, when we thought our solar system was the center of the galaxy, when we thought we were the only galaxy in existence, we were wrong. And so when we think that we are the only ones, when we think we are special and unique, we are often wrong. And so I think there's no way that we are alone in the universe. Yeah, neither do I. Like I said in the intro, I like kind of converted to atheism, but I feel like the saddest thing to me about not living forever is that if I die, like I won't be able to be around if we ever discover aliens or if we ever live on Mars, you know? I know. Man, the the other thing with learning about exoplanets or planets that exist outside of our solar system is when it comes to religion, my question is like, if we do find another... Will we convert them? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Probably. We will work too. But did Jesus visit that planet? Because <laughs> that is when I would start to be like, oh, interesting. Really? Mm-hmm. That would be my first question to the aliens is like, anyone come and visit you guys? Yeah. You mentioned going to Mars. You mentioned trying to expand the human presence in space. But what are some of the other biggest mysteries in astronomy that we're still trying to work out? Oh my gosh. I I mean, the biggest ones are, where did we come from? And are Mm. we alone in the universe? 
Those are the two biggest mysteries in space because we don't really know where life came from. There's a theory that maybe asteroids have these organic compounds that are the building blocks of life and maybe asteroids deliver life, not intentionally, but just by crashing into a planet, they can deposit all of these ingredients for life and under the right conditions, they will grow. And maybe in some conditions, very special ones, they can create intelligent life. But we don't know. We don't know why here. Why? How did it happen? When? What was the first spark that that enabled it to happen? And then again, like, are we alone in the universe? We're constantly mm-hmm. searching both for intelligent life, like us, uh, and the way that we define intelligent life is people who use technology, who create and use technology. And so we're listening for technology out in the universe. And we're also searching for microbial life, stuff that you can only see under a microscope. So when we send things to Mars, for example, we're often looking to see if there was any signs of life that existed there. And so those are still some of the biggest things. The James Webb Space Telescope is looking at the atmospheres of exoplanets to see if there's any signs of life in the atmosphere. If somebody were to look back at Earth and and study our atmosphere, there are elements in our atmosphere in certain quantities that are dead giveaways that we have life living on the surface. And so we are trying to do the same thing with other exoplanets in in the solar system or in the universe to try to see if there are signs of life on those planets. But do you think that we're looking for signs of life, assuming that all life will imitate life on Earth? Like, is it possible that there could be life on another planet that exists in a kind of atmosphere that we thought was uninhabitable? Yes, 100%. Our view of life is so limited to an N of one. Like we have one example Mm -hmm. that we are referring to. And so the way that we are looking for other life has to be limited because we don't know any other way to look. And so is Mm -hmm. there other life out there that we could be missing because it doesn't reflect the same life that we see here on earth? Definitely. That could definitely be a possibility. Mm -hmm. This is kind of unrelated, but how do you feel about astrology? Because, you know, you hear people talking about like Mercury in retrograde or like Aries rising constellations. How do you feel about astrology? Do you do you follow your horoscope? Now that I live like south of L.A., uh, there are a lot more people that bring up <laughs> astrology and just common conversation. I think astrology is fun and it doesn't hurt anybody. And so mm-hmm. there are a lot of people with a scientific background who are like very mad about people who care about astrology. I'm like, it's, it brings people joy and people find it fun. And I think it like offers a lot of self-reflection of, uh, and some introspection of who you think you are and how you identify. And I think there's no harm in it. It seems fun. I don't personally follow it myself. All right. Well, that is my last question. But before we go, I wanted to do a little lightning round of some questions out of hat. Not really space related, but they're just silly questions. All right. Question number one. Oh, what was your favorite subject in school? Math. Math was my favorite subject. You're my people. Okay, question number two. How pretty do I look on a scale of one to ten? Twelve. That is correct. And last but not least, question number three. What is your guilty pleasure TV show? Oh my gosh. It used to be The Bachelor, but I'm telling you, I like skipped one season and the way that they like repurpose previous contestants, I feel like I'm so out of the loop. But <laughs> like recently I've been watching White Lotus. I love Love is Blind. 
like those types of shows. Oh, and I just started watching The Last of Us, which is really great. Everyone's been talking about it. I haven't watched it, but I've played the video game like halfway through. And then I got like so scared because of because of the zombies. I hate a jump scare. So that's why I cannot. Oh, I know. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that. I like I skip through some of the scary parts just to be there for the story. <laughs> so I, I do have one last question. You obviously are such an inspiration. What advice would you give to somebody who's listening to this podcast who wants to be like you. Oh my gosh. So people who want to go into the STEM fields, there's going to be a lot of challenges that you meet along the way just because of the nature of STEM. And for me, the best thing that I did was create a community of friendship with people who are similar to me. Um, I have a group of girlfriends who I just go to with every challenge for advice or just event or whatever it is. But those groups of people that I have, like have gotten me through so many things that have allowed me to achieve what I've achieved. And so like, find your community of people who you can go to, who you can trust, who you will like share all of your challenges with. That's my best piece of advice. Find your community. I love that. Well, thanks so much for being on Think Queen. Where can everybody find you? Ooh, I am at the Space Gal on every part of social media. <laughs> everybody will have to follow you after this. Thank you so much for being on Think Queen, Emily. Bye. Bye. Think Queen is produced by Entertainment One. Director of Programming at E1's Podcast Network, Sasha Tong. Producer, Maddie Hanika and Sasha Tong. Associate Producers, Chris Chu. Edited and mixed by Maddie Hanika. For more episodes, subscribe to Think Queen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen. And if you like this podcast, share it with your friends and make sure to leave a rating and review. Subscribe now to Think Queen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.